Don Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room. What a week this has been so far, Carly. We've got sports happening in Florida. The NBA and the WNBA are going to tip off. Baseball will is trying to throw a first pitch. Of course, they're having some labor problems at the moment. All three leagues are having COVID problems, too. That's kind of mirroring the whole country, in a sense. Um, was it in the, in the WNBA, there's seven. Two have been named. Uh, I can't see it. Don, I can't see how they're going to run a season. I'm surprised that we're able to see that able to get the things that we have, uh, get the things that have been done. Uh, IndyCar, IndyCar race last weekend, NASCAR is continuing their season, even though I have a feeling the NASCAR season may ground to the halt, may ground to a halt if they lose a if they have a couple more drivers come up with COVID. Like apparently it happened with Jimmy Johnson a couple weeks ago. I can't see them continuing a season. I just can't see sports going. I can't see baseball doing what they're doing. I don't know how you can contain this effectively and have a, and have a season. It just goes back to the, it goes back to the simple fact that from the highest levels of, of our, of our society, Americans have largely botched the response to this pandemic to a level that the rest of the world is shaking their heads going, what is with you Americans? And I think that's to be blamed on the administration. I think if the Trump administration had from the beginning taken more direct action, been more clear about what guidelines they should be giving, taken those guidelines and applied them to our president and it's, and our leaders, if they had, if they had led by example, I don't think we'd be where we are. I, and, and I'm seeing that not just within our body politic, but within but within our sporting organizations, within our, I mean, within our communities. It's got to start at the top. I agree. It, it has to start He's at the top. He's wearing a mask and, now, and, Carly. He's wearing a mask now. You going to give him credit? <laughs> well, I, I see it like this. He's, he's wearing a mask in part because he realizes there's a little thing in November called an election. <laughs> and... And if he wants to get reelected, you can't look, you can't look, you can't look like any more than an idiot than you already have. And, and then to top it off the, in a time of decisiveness and a time when it, when decisive leadership is called for the only decision that he chooses to make is letting Roger Stone off. Yeah. Oh, politics. You know, it's funny. Trump said that uh, now he likes masks. He says he feels like the Lone Ranger and Andrea Mitchell on NBC said, if he thinks he's wearing it like the Lone Ranger, he's not doing it right. <laughs> oh, but, I, you know, on uh, against this backdrop of COVID deaths, which, you know, they have plateaued and cases have skyrocketed. We also have the other pandemic, which is transphobia, which has resulted in 18 murders of trans women in America, the most recent at the beginning of the month and the last month. Just it, it's it's as if. We are not humans. We are target practice. We are fodder for, for haters. And I just don't understand how in all of the things that are going on in the world right now, that killing trans people isn't something that has gone away. It's still just as bad, if not worse. We're almost at the number we had at all of 2019. And it's not yet half. It, we're just past the halfway mark of 2020. And that's just in this country. Of course, this number is at least 
18. Who knows how many unreported deaths there are in America and around the world? Brazil is the capital of transphobia in terms of murders. Hundreds every year. And a lot of them don't have, and a lot of them die without any name. Yeah. I mean, and Don, if it's not that, then it's, I mean, violence is not just blunt for is not just blunt force there's the economic violence we're dealing with there is the there is the systemic violence that's coming in the form of betsy devos basically threatening an entire state's public schools because they want to treat trans students like any other human being and any other kid who walks into the school building uh Mm -hmm. you are seeing i mean you're seeing this great thing that that I saw in the SI swimsuit issue on Friday, and then it seems like every Twitter troll with a with with something to say with something to say that's completely transphobic is getting on Twitter right now. Yeah, uh, but it was it was it was a major accomplishment. It does. Oh, it's a, a beautiful. Towards, atom- no, it, a beautiful it goes a long way towards addressing the frustration we feel, and I recognize it. I I hear you. I feel the frustration inside of you, but. I don't know what else we can do other than take to the streets as you've always prescribed. We need to be seen. We need to be visible. We need to be heard. But we also need, we need cisgender people being out there with us. We need, we need people. We need to realize that, you know, I have been grateful to the cis people in my life who've been, who've been supporters. And this, and this message isn't necessarily for them because they're doing the work. I'm talking about those people, especially the people who are on the fence thinking it's not your, it's, this is not my issue. No, you have skin in this game. You have skin in it. We all have skin in it. When economic violence, especially right now in this pandemic, we are all feeling, we're all feeling the heat and we're all feeling the isolation. We're all feeling, and we're all feeling the strain. We need people that are willing to, people, you got it. We have to stand in the gap here. I mean, just, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's the thing. I mean, I hear this too often. And in the work I do with Trans Lifeline, Don, I hear this too often where where people just feel like right now, transgender people worldwide, especially here in this country, feel like it's a siege. And that siege is just content. And it just seems that siege is mounting and that frustration is mounting. I think people listen bring your bring your empathy to the table that's the greatest weapon you have bring your empathy to the table we need it we need everyone all hands on deck and i do appreciate our trans allies who come to our defense on social media who march with us in the streets but yes we need more and we also need more of us to stand up too and i wanted to um if you don't mind Set the coordinates for the transporter room to Long Island, where Gabrielle Spire is waiting to be beamed up. Welcome to the transporter room, Gabriella. Uh, thanks for uh, welcoming me, Dawn and uh, Kylie. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I bet you've been listening to us uh, go on and on about uh, where things stand. Tell us where you are right now in, all, in terms of all this with COVID, with trans murders with the sports illustrated issue with sports tell us what your thoughts are gabriella well i think uh that 
it's, it's a difficult time to be part of any minority right now. If you're um, not a cis white male and you're not part of the group that is uh, almost like trying to have white supremacists run the country. So I think um, many groups are being attacked and marginalized. And obviously the most visible one right now is, you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, but we as trans transgender people in the trans community are probably some of the most vulnerable for a variety of reasons, because the world still is having a hard time understanding, but also because we're an easier group to target and to um, attack um, because it's the least understood. And you also have some of the religious uh, aspect of things that people, you know, so people have a hard time wrapping their brain around it whenever, you know, I talk to groups and, you know, I guess later on we'll talk about, uh, you know, my book uh, that I'm a co-author, Giving Women a, a, a Voice. Last year when I was a, uh, keynote speaker at Commemoration Day highlighting um, domestic violence on Long Island. Um, I, I talk to religious groups and say that, you know, God loves all his children and we should all accept each other. And I understand your difficulty in this journey of understanding. So I'm having compassion towards you. And it would be great if you had compassion towards me. So to even not having people in general understand things, I always talk the difference. You know, we have a label and we try to, and many times words are important, positive words. So trying to look at things in a positive way to say that um, it's, a, it's a birth difference and it's an extreme birth difference. Just like people are born without limbs or without certain other things that are not more typical, you know, um, so they call them birth defects, but it's really a birth difference. It's not as much typical. So to make it easy for people to understand, I wind up, I, I tell people that our minds are formed one way and our bodies were formed another. And we have to go through that process, which is really still really even difficult for us and very traumatizing in many ways to make our bodies and our minds match, you know, too. So making it a little bit easier for people to understand. And there are some people who, are, who see us as being brave and courageous. It's like the guy or the, or the girl that comes out gay in high school and then they're being bullied, but then quietly people come over and it's like, well, how do you get that person? And you're so brave and you're so courageous. So I try to look at the positives for it about setting an example for standing up and being authentic, which is really important to be your authentic self. And I try to talk to people to have them try to understand and have compassion towards their difficulties with it. We can't ask somebody to understand us until we really understand them, you know, as well. And, and being visible. I mean, it's, um, you're, you're right, Kali, we have to be out and we have to uh, uh, be seen and heard so that people become comfortable with it and that they understand that we're underneath everything, all the differences of all the groups, we're all just people and we should have to all be there to support each other. It really heartened me a few weeks ago to see the Black, uh, Black Trans Lives Matter march in Brooklyn. It, it was huge. The day before the Supreme Court decision uh, came down on a Sunday afternoon, they had, there had to be 10 to 20,000 people there for a Black Trans Lives Matter uh, march in, in Brooklyn, near the Brooklyn Museum. And that really heartened me. 
So between that and the Supreme Court decision, which I think was the first time that a group in the federal government had stood up and felt acknowledged, we you know felt acknowledged and gave us rights that because you have to be able to earn a living in order to be able to support yourself. So that's really fundamental, and that at times makes people difficult for people to be out, you know, in in, in the workplace. You know, so I I see people in everyday life trying to be more positive, you know, as much you know they can be. And but you're right too. Everything stems from leadership, and leadership needs to be uh, positive and supportive. You know, and reverse the trends of the last four years for all minorities and all all, all groups. So hopefully that will come in November. No, I hope so. But we're all gonna have to do our we're gonna have to do our job, line up at those poles and like and flood them as much as possible. Uh, I had an opportunity to to uh take in your interview with Donna Ann Pace a few days ago. Um Okay. Now one thing for you is a very interesting your work I mean being trans and working with and working with people and going on a, a forum and a platform in the case of that interview that that was also sent to the United Kingdom, a, a country which has been called Turf Island by some people that has become that that is like probably really seriously pushing the United States for like most transphobic nation in the industrialized world status. How important was that for you to talk about the things you're talking about in your book? as a trans woman coming to that forum and speaking to that audience? Um, well, I thought it was important to highlight the issues that we were talking about. I wasn't quite as aware uh, that the UK was as, you know, transphobic as you had mentioned that. I felt it was important to be part of a bigger discussion. And in many ways, I think that's at times how we all make progress when you are part of a larger discussion. And uh, so that um, who you are is just a minor part of it. You're a person dealing with an issue, and which was also what was great uh, about, it, as you guys had talked about before, about the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, where the the person was treated as a person and taken for who they are and how she appeared, you know, uh, for that too. So, um, Donna is a, is the lead author, uh, and she's a compiler of, of the book. So that's why some things really emanate out of the UK, but, uh, the authors are, uh, we're from all around the world. There's six of us in the U S there's, um, uh, there's uh, two two people in the UK, or I think there's four in the US, three in the UK, and three in Malta. So, uh, what really what came to mind was that the um, we didn't even know each other before the book. It's you know we started compiling. Donna started compiling the stories, and it it shows that the same things can happen in different parts around the world and, you know, people and families and men and women can behave, uh, be really hurtful and, uh, 
ha- uh, you can experience domestic violence or domestic abuse or family abuse, you know, anywhere around the world. And the, uh, the current situation is actually making it worse. But if I, but if I can, um, if what I had done by being part of a, a um, broadcast and, and br- being out in the UK uh, can make things more positive for the transgender community or the minorities. I'm really happy to do that. I know that my fellow co-authors. I mean, I've I'm out in the in, in the book about my background, but it's only a, a part of it. So I think that really kind of helps to highlight how there's two sides of it: how the struggle within a family to be your authentic self and have the right support and the right background is important. But then there's also the other part of it, which many times has nothing to do with our our gender identity, only from the standpoint that I I think it affects our self-esteem somewhat when you're not true to yourself. So the more you're authentic to yourself, the better your self-esteem is. But then people can be hurtful and they have their own built-in biases and, and phobias, whether it's within your family or in society as well. It's just more hurtful when it's within your families or your, you know, your immediate family or your broader family. The book is called Giving Women a Voice. It provides a perspective on overcoming domestic violence, and you are the only out LGBTQ person in the book. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to get involved in this project. What's your story, Gabriella? Well, I... uh... I decided to get involved in this project. I was um, lucky to meet Anne or Donna, Donna Ann Pace. Uh, we, um, uh, I went to uh, a, a women's conference uh, in 2018. It's called the Global Sisterhood and that's in Pittsburgh run by a wonderful uh, woman named Shelly Hipsky, a good friend of mine, uh, Jess Brannis is part of the organization. And we've been friends through uh, the uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Philadelphia area, you know, uh, uh, girls, you know, as part of a group through all that and and New Hope and that whole area, too. So we became friends and she was part of that group. So I felt it was, you know, being my authentic self that I would love to be part of a global sisterhood where women come together to support each other and support causes to... uh, um, improve the lives of women in the U.S. and around the world. So at the um, conference, uh, they had a workshop where uh, we were talking about what we're doing, what we are, how we can support each other, and Don and I sat next to each other. And uh, I had stood up and, and said that, because that's the time when I truly realized more so that I am a domestic violence survivor. Sometimes we don't even realize the situations that we're in and and how negative it is or not positive it is and how hurtful people can be. Uh, So I stood up at that time and I said, well, I'm a domestic violence survivor and I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with it yet, but I want to discuss that and I want to write about it. And I want to look at uh, how I can take my experiences, and I realize it goes all the way back to my early childhood from my family, That, um, and I want to make something positive with it. At that point, I also outed myself, and I said that um, 
most of you might not be aware or see that I started life a little differently. And that really changed the conversation too there because everybody was talking about, you know, they're doing life coaching or they're doing singing or um, Darius Chisholm was there. She's uh, the uh, Channel 11 uh, Pittsburgh uh, newscaster who was uh, a, uh, a victim of, um, I forget exactly the term, social media abuse where she, um, it, it's uh, where you sexually exploit somebody. Like she had private videos that were taken between her and her boyfriend that were used against her. Like when they broke up, he used it to be abusive with her. So she launched the campaign to change the laws where somebody um, can be uh, arrested and brought to justice for uh, releasing uh, things uh, on the internet. But anyway, I met Donna, she was sitting next to me. She had just written her first book, The, uh, the Reinvention of Me. And as we were talking, you know, uh, I bought the book and we were t she was telling me about what she had gone through in England about um, overcoming her own personal domestic violence abuse situation. And then a, a few months later, uh, she reached out to, she wanted a, she had an idea of putting a, a book together with voices around the world because it hasn't been done before. Because I think collectively, you know, people individually have written books, but nobody as a group have written about their own individual experiences, you know, there too. And in, and even in that conference that I went to, they had, uh, it changed the conversation in the, in the room. It made it more personal. People started talking about their personal feelings about things. Somebody was saying, that I have two master's degrees. And, and then, and, and then, um, I, and yet I have a hurtful boyfriend who's, who's abusive. So it was really uh, quite enlightening and heartening to see how people started talking about things that they personally went to with somebody else was a victim of um, domestic uh, uh, violence where they had, acid poured on them by a hurtful, you know, spouse or boyfriend. That's so that's horrible. Yeah. It, I mean, it, I'm, it I'm, also, I'm also a survivor of domestic violence and it was part of the transition and it was horrifying. And I don't think I recognized it as being a victim until years later. Yeah. And it takes a lot to actually to, to admit to ourselves that we could be in situations like that and the people that we love or that we feel love supposedly love us would be hurtful to us i i i liken many times the um domestic violence i wouldn't even say a movement but there is a movement to highlight it and to you know try to lessen its effect it's it's like the me too movement on steroids because it's the Me Too movement is public uh, abuse many times. And, you, you know, if, if it's done in the home with, with family, then it's domestic violence. But when it's done in the workplace, people have a hard time wrapping their brain around the, it, it, it being done in the workplace. And um, coworkers and bosses and, you know, can be coercive and hurtful in that sense. So imagine admitting to ourselves that it happens in the home that somebody that you love would, would be hurtful or wants to control you or is not supportive and loving and caring. 
and that we allow that into our lives. So that that's a really hard thing to deal with, and I can understand why it would be so hard for people to to um, accept it and to realize that. And I think in any time somebody goes through difficult change, there could, there's trauma involved, and it is traumatic, and it affects us. And I think that everybody who's courageous uh, enough to be able to go through the process to be their authentic selves, whatever that is, and whatever somebody's definition of that is for themselves, you know, goes through some, uh, goes through some trauma. And I think we experience more of that. It's a good word. And when we come back, we're going to look into that cycle of trauma and how we break the cycle. This is the Transporter Room. We'll be back. And we're back in the Transporter Room. We're talking with Gabriella Spire, co-author of Giving Women a Voice, available on Amazon. It's all about overcoming domestic violence. And this is something that the trans community knows all too well. Uh, yes, we do. I mean, that that's one thing that all three of us have in common, that we've all, we've all suffered through, that we've all had to fight through it. We've all been survivors of it. And Gabriella, one thing you talk you talk about at length in speeches you've given is that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. This this happens in in a cycle, and it continues to perpetuate itself. There's something you said in your speech where, in your commemoration day speech, that when you're growing up in a house where you're never heard or respected or really seen as your own person, and you don't have an identity or sense of yourself, it draws you to people that are not positive or supportive. Talk about how that about how that continues to manifest and multiply on itself in our relationships to where it's a continuous cycle that we have to break. And how do we break it? Uh, thanks for asking that, because that's something that's really important and something that I've been working on. And we're really all a work in progress. So the first most important part is to be aware of that. So to we all have our natural attractions and many of that comes from our early formative years. And I think that we need to, um, I'm still attracted many times to the same types of people, which is, as you said, is, hasn't been positive and, and supportive and where I'm not heard quite as much. But now as I work through things and allow myself to deal with the, the pain and the hurtfulness and make changes for where I've been, I, I step back when I meet people or I have relationships. I, I take more time to not let them in, in quite as easily because I do want to have close personal relationships. And I, I want people to see me for who I am and be accepted for who I am. So I, I take more time to, to, to look at things and, and to see how people are before I truly let them in and um, get closer to them. So that's an important aspect of how we break the cycle and something that can be difficult for people. Do you notice any difference between trans women who are victims of domestic violence and trans men who are victims of domestic violence? Is there a gender gap? And I, could, I should throw in those who are non-binary or gender non-conforming. Um, 
Well, I, 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 I honestly haven't had too much experience dealing with people who are trans men or trans women who've actually openly have acknowledged that they're uh, victims of domestic violence. I, 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 I see it many times in groups that I'm part of, and I do run an online support group because I think that it, definitely in our COVID era, you know, where we're more isolated, there are things that are highlighted more in, in the community and we need more supportive people. We need, need more support if you're not getting it in your families. Um, but I, I would think that, you know, uh, for a trans man or a trans woman who is living authentically, they'll probably have some of the same experiences or feelings, you know, of being domestic uh, survivors or uh, of domestic uh, violence. I would like to say survivors instead of victims. It's important to say to, I see myself as a survivor somebody where I've overcome and I'm not part of that. So I'm looking to heal and to grow and then to make change, to have more positive, supportive people in my life. Um, I, um, depending on where people are in their lives when they transition, you know, do you have some of the early uh, childhood um, societal um, ways that we are brought up, you know, too, that many times we have to re-acclimate to our true authentic gender. And, and, and really men and women all have both parts, you know, men and women, we're all really combined. It's just sometimes we think that, you know, men are from Venus and women are from Mars or vice versa. I always, I always seem to get that wrong, you know, how it's like that. But in many ways, uh, hurt, being hurtful is being hurt regardless of whether you're a man or a woman. And domestic violence happens to men as well. I mean, it's, it's, um, I was shocked to hear of a statistic that before the age of 18, uh, one in four women, but one in six men experience sexual abuse in the home, which is really, or sexual assault. That's really quite a shocking statistic to hear to be as high for men. And I think with the stigma that, you know, of men being, you know, abused themselves, that uh, it's hard to um, be open about that. But it's, um, it's painful regardless of, of where it comes from. And I, um, I think it's harder for us to have supportive people, but it's, it's wonderful when you can have it in your family. And I see that with people that have supportive families, especially it's, it happens more with younger people. You know, too, it's starting to, because there's a little, there's more understanding in the last 10 to 15 years. So people that are are older and have more life experience and have families, it's it's hard on the families too. I, I've seen how it affects uh, my son and my ex. And uh, when we make change, it's hard. We affect the people around us no matter what that change is. That's a very key point. You know, it's often said that when you transition, everybody transitions with you. And no, one thing I, one thing I want to ask is there's another different article I read where you talked about growing up and having to deal with, and having to deal with these thoughts that you may be having inside and not sure how that you, that you felt the need to be perfect. And that, that struck me because I felt very much the same growing up, growing up and trying to 
like hide what ultimately had to come out their transition. And one thing we all have in common is we all transitioned later in life. Talk about what it was like to have to go through that growing up and how have you managed to heal from it now? What has that process been like? Um, well, yeah, thanks for bringing that out. Um, and, and that's something that I, I have so much compassion and understanding and I feel so much for uh, all of us that had to transition later in life when the world was so different, even as close as 20 years ago, how, how different it was. Um, I grew up in New York City in, in Queens. I was born in the Bronx and then moved to Queens. And um, even being in New York City, it, 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 there is, it wasn't even an understanding or, or knowing how things were. And there was no books, there was no nothing. And I had these feelings at 10 years old of, um, you know, needing to express, you know, a female part of me and not understanding why. So I, I kept it hidden and not, and not, not knowing what it is and um, not having anybody to talk to. So my parents came from Europe and they, they went through the war. Um, and my grandparents went through two world wars. So that is a huge trauma in itself. And we've only in the last 30, 25 to 30 years begun to understand the PTSD from, you know, from uh, in the military and then also police and fire and just traumatic events, you know, too. So one of the things that occurs is we want to try to control our environment and to do perfect. And that's how my parents dealt with it. They didn't know that in the 50s and 60s, they needed to uh, go through therapy themselves to kind of deal with everything that they dealt with you know, too. So we had to be the perfect kids. And that's probably also why I kept things inside because we could never be heard or listened to as kids. It had to be what my parents wanted. You know, this is how you're going to be. This is where you're going to go to school. This is how you're going to dress. This is, uh, you know, what you're going to study. These are the curricular activities that you're going to do, which uh, when you look from the outside, looked like any typical middle-class family. But in, you know, my, it was anything but that you know, growing up, if the easiest way to liken it would have been like that movie, Mommy Dearest, oh, where everything looked. <laughs> yeah, I felt like I grew up in a house just like Mommy Dearest, that I was one of those kids. Let's talk about you know, therapy. Too. A lot of people, I think in modern 2020 society, consider therapy a, um, a positive, a net positive. But there are a lot of people who completely refuse to seek therapy or think that there won't be a therapist who can understand the transgender experience or they are, um, they've been burned. What's your view and recommendation in terms of finding a therapist to deal with all these traumas in terms of childhood trauma, domestic trauma, transition trauma? What has been your experience and your recommendation? Well, um, my experience has been one where I in my early therapy, going back to the mid 80s and 90s, was actually not very positive from that standpoint. And my early therapist, uh, originally, we didn't even talk about the gender part of things. It was just dealing with life and the family and 
overcoming the abuse that I'd come from too. But then when I had gotten married the second time in the late 80s and then started incorporating it, which we were having marital difficulties and, um, you know, it coming out about me being transgender or having a, you know, feeling female, uh, you know, needing to be, my therapist didn't support that. So I actually went through conversion therapy in the early 90s and because he, he supported my my ex, that it was like, well, you can't be this way. You're not going to be able, you know, she doesn't support it. You, it, you can't, um, it, it's not positive or it's like it won't help you in your ther- in your marriage. So it, I actually had was pushed further back into the closet in, in that sense. And it was very depressing. And I just really secluded myself and went to work and, you know, worked and went home. And it was always a source of contention in, in a relationship. And, but then in the late, um, in a uh, late, you know, 2007, 2008, and because uh, how, I guess my mom had to pass away. Sometimes we have ghosts in our lives and I, I never felt that my my family or my mother would actually accept it. So I, I hid that. But when she passed, I, I had a need to be myself more. And um, so I, you know, I, I found, well, but my son saw things and I saw uh, of how I am and it, uh, he was aware that there was something going on and he had a hard time with it. I found a therapist that was a, a gender therapist and uh, 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 covered all areas, the typical areas, but also had a lot of gender knowledge. And I took my son and I went myself. And so having a therapist that has an understanding of things, I mean, if you can have a therapist that's a good therapist that has a transgender experience, that's, uh, you know, would be ideal because she or he has the greatest understanding of what you go through. But somebody, you, you, it could be a cisgender person who is very compassionate and very supportive and would be an ally, an ally, you know, to who would be like, can be compassionate like that. So um, for me, it was positive because she understood everything. And she also helped me through relationships. Um, she, I, I actually added um, trauma therapy to it. Uh, later on, uh, as I went to uh, realize that I was I'm a domestic violence survivor, there's domestic violence organizations that do uh, therapy. I, the wonderful group on Long Island called Vibes that I go to, and I can't thank them enough for the support. And um, even through my insurance, I was able to get them to approve out-of-network additional therapy for what we're called EMDR. It's called, uh, it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It was originally used for uh, the military, for soldiers, for reprocessing the traumatic experiences they, they go through in the war, in, uh, in combat. And then it's been transferred to uh, people every day. And it could be traumatic experience like being a 9-11 survivor or a car accident or being a nurse or, you know, a healthcare worker, you know, expanding it. It helps our brain to deal with the trauma and to reprocess the thoughts around the traumatized part of our brain. So I've actually sought it out. But, uh, you know, the key to therapy is to kind of open doors and then to do things on your own, too. I'm part of a great group 
that I've taken also called healing voices where we heal ourselves and we reteach ourselves to listen to the new voice, a more positive voice. And to, you know, those old voices, those old ways never really change. They're always there. So we have to acknowledge them and when they surface, find ways to, to accent the positive and be more positive. Yeah, that's so, that's um, very true because I see that also in my own transition. Something you had said in a different interview, you had said that transition was taking your was taking your life from black and white to color. These days, where's the color for you? The color is being thankful to be my authentic self. I, no matter how difficult my days can be. I'm thrilled to be able to be true to myself. Um, I think that cisgendered people don't really go through that. I mean, most people wake up or, or you know are born, grow up. Their their bodies and their minds match. So in in some ways, it's taken for granted that they feel like a man or feel like a woman, and then they go about their lives that way. Um, for me to be able to go through that process and you know, be able to be myself, I feel is a blessing, you know, at, at some point in my life. I mean, I wish I was 20 or 30 or 40 years younger, you know, to oh, do don't it. we but... all? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tell me about it. That's not just you, dear. But you know, not just you. But you know, that's important. To, but that's important to bring that out because in just doing a lot of the research for this interview, I know that that's a theme, Gabriella, that you bring in a lot. Now, and it, I mean, doing the research for this, took me to play it to, for this podcast took me to a lot of places as well to like in many ways reevaluate i'm looking forward to reading this book i might add but it got me to thinking where's the color and i can tell you there's a lot of color even with the difficulty that we're facing i mean one one part of the color is i get to do this great podcast with don ennis every week and yeah, I, if there's a person that can who's whose own experience shows that there can be a lot of color coming from all that black and white. It's been Dawn's experience and it's been an inspiration for me. So no, it, it's good that you bring it. I mean, we're probably giving you another subject for a whole new book here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just talking about that. I, I have a lot of books that I want to write. Yes. You know, the color of life. And, and if I can set an example, if I either they're doing this podcast or writing the, my chapter in the book, uh, can save one life or give somebody one person to connect with by being out. I know you had said earlier that I'm the only out person in the book. And I felt it was important to be out. I I, I felt that I, I needed the group of people to feel comfortable to put the story completely out there. I feel like we are so marginalized in the last four years, especially so, that... Um, I didn't want my gender identity to be the driving factor to look at having people read it and look at the difficulties and make positive changes in their families. I wanted people to know that regardless of what my gender identity was, I experienced family abuse or domestic violence or however somebody feels comfortable saying it. And it's the same experience that a cisgendered woman or even a cisgendered man would go through. It, it, it's a, a it's heightened a little bit because of the difficulties of the gender experience in my family. And, uh, but I didn't want it to color that. Like when I, I've been part of a, 
a bullying workshop in school, like overcoming childhood bullying at, you know, I went back to college to get my social work degree. So it, even in there, she wanted to put the, um, uh, you know, the flyer out to say as a trans person. And I said, no, I really don't want to do that. I, I want to put it out as Gabrielle, a childhood domestic, a, a bullying survivor. And I will out myself in the group, but I don't want people's built-in biases to possibly not come and join the discussion because they might have a difficulty with understanding, you know, who I am or seeing me how, how I am. So that's the other reason for being part of this, because I think at times when you're part of a larger conversation that people can see that we're people, you know, just, just people, you know, that men and women and for people who are gender fluid or gender nonconforming when they're somewhere in between, you know, too. So, um, I wanted to have people read the book and read the story without having biases. And I felt it would reach more people if we did it as a group. I mean, right now we're still in that discussion between men and women about women and minorities, everybody having an equal voice. And they say in business that if one man is heard in a boardroom, it will take two or three women collaborating together to be heard. So... I wanted to have my voice being able to be heard in a, in a complete way. So that's wonderful. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm that glad way. you sp you stood up. You know, sometimes it all it takes is for someone to stand up and say, "This is me. This is what I'm going through." And uh, you know, one of the things mm -hmm. that we do on the Trans Sporter Room is that we share our love for things uh, in the sci-fi world. Um, we call it the transporter room because Carly and I both love Star Trek. Do you have a fantasy? Ah, or a I love Star fiction? Trek too. You're a Trekkie. Oh, that's okay, awesome. There's three of us. Yeah. Three Trekkers in the house. This is good. Yeah. The, ori <laughs> so the original, the original Star Trek. You're the original series that we are jamming on. Yeah. More so. Yes. So tell yeah. us what, what's your favorite Star Trek memory or thought or episode or feeling or character? Oh, well, I definitely love Lieutenant Uhura. She was all, you know, you, 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 you don't always re realize who the people that you're drawn to. So I was always drawn to Lieutenant Uhura, you know, too. And the Furbies, the Furby episode. Oh, always. you mean the Tribbles? The Tribbles, yeah. The tribbles. tribbles, okay. <laughs> That's hilarious, Furbies. You're showing your age. Yeah. No, yeah. My favorite, my favorite line, my favorite line in all the episodes, and there are a lot of great episodes, um, I mean, City on the Edge of Forever, where Kirk has to go back in time to catch Dr. McCoy, and he falls in love, and he has to let the woman of his dreams die. That's one of my favorite episodes of all time. But, but, in another episode, Captain Kirk says, risk, risk is our business. And I quote that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Carly, yeah, how about you? you know favorite uh Favorite episode is or, or I, character or anything. Favorite, uh, really favorite episode, Balance of Terror. Oh, the Romulans, yes, yeah, because of the way it was done, because of the way Roddenberry sets up the story. It's like it's like a submarine battle, it was like a World War II episode, yeah. I mean, it was, but at another level, it's actually my favorite, actually, my favorite. My favorite thing about Star Trek was the interplay between, between McCoy and Spock. <laughs> because it, I mean, it very much mirrors the interplay between myself and Dawn in a lot of ways. It, yes, it, it does. does. It does mirror that. You green-blooded hobgoblin, in, inhuman. 
I'm not sure who Spock and McCoy are in the, in our particular coupling. I think we switch back and forth sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it this is who's got the pointed here. ears today. Oh, I don't have pointed ears. No, no, I pointed up. I have two pointed something else's, but they're not. They're not ears. <laughs> <laughs> So this has been an absolute pleasure having you, Gabriella. And again, the book is called, please tell everyone where they can find it. Yes, it's called Giving Women a Voice. It's available on Amazon. It's available in Kindle version at, or, and in uh, you know paperback. And if somebody would like a uh, signed copy, we, and I have to post it out myself. And so they can reach out to me on Facebook under my name, Gabrielle Spear or um, under G, uh, email me at gabriellespear at gmail.com. Yeah, and we'll put uh, all these links uh, on the Facebook page for the Transporter Room okay. so you can find it easily. Well, yes, let's take coordinates. Uh, enjoy Long Island. Enjoy the beaches if you can, because I love Long Island yes. beaches. They're the best beaches around. Just wear a mask. Wear a mask. Yes, wear a mask. <laughs> yeah, I'm supposed to go with a a group of friends would do some outdoor dining tomorrow and I'm, I'm rethinking it. I'm not sure if I really want to. Because well, I, maintain I, social distance, I'm, that's all. Yeah. Well, but even within that, they're finding that, you know, you, you have to be careful with the people around you and you could be True. safe, but maybe somebody else passes near you and is not safe. And then, Or they were yeah. exposed to someone who they then exposed to you. It's very true. This is why we stay mostly yeah. at home here at the Ennis household. All right. Beaming yeah. her back to Long Island. Bye-bye, Gabrielle. Bye-bye. Yeah. It was really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity, okay? Thank you, guys. Thank you for being here. And that's all for this week. Carly, I'll see you next week in the transporter room. I'll see you, and everyone, be good to each other. Wear a mask. Please. <laughs>